Week 3, Day 1, Who Shall Ascend the Hill of the Lord? Well, hello there, Three Crosses family. My name is Max Critchfield. I'm the college director here at Three Crosses, and I want to welcome you to week three of our journey through the Psalms, where we will be working through the rest of book one together. Over the next several episodes, we will be zeroing in on Psalms 15 to 24. Up to this point, the Psalms have encouraged us to look to David, Israel's blessed king. But last week, we found him hanging on by a thread. He is on the run, overwhelmed and desperate to experience God's deliverance from his enemies who seem to be victorious over him. Now, based on last week's entries, you might be wondering, what can David do to get out of this mess and reorient himself to strengthen his faith in the Lord? Psalms 15 to 24 begin to answer this question. Today, I want to approach the two Psalms that begin and end this specific section because they share a similar refrain. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Those are Psalms 15 and 24, and I'm excited to explore them with you today. So let's read together Psalm 15, beginning in verse one, a Psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, and in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. And now Psalm 24, again a Psalm of David, starting in verse one. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And then verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. As we read this shared refrain, we may ask ourselves, what is this hill that the psalmist is describing here? What is this holy place? In short, what is being referred to here is Jerusalem, the city which David made the capital of Israel, the city commonly referred to as Zion. Jerusalem was situated atop a mountain range in Israel, and in fact still is. And in particular, we have in our view the location of what would be the temple the holy place where God made his dwelling with man. 
In Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus sets the scene by saying a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's in Luke 10.30. To get to most other places in Israel, you had to go down. And to go to Jerusalem, you had to go up. Not only were you traveling upwards in terms of geography, with Jerusalem sitting at approximately 2,500 feet above sea level, you were traveling upwards in a spiritual sense, drawing nearer to the place where God dwelt, the temple. And these Psalms both ask a question, who is able to actually stand in God's holy place? Who is able to ascend his holy hill to come into the presence of the Lord? Both of these Psalms present us with portraits of this kind of person. In Psalm 15, we see a picture of integrity, someone who walks blamelessly before God, who speaks truth and not slander, and who keeps his word even when it hurts. And in Psalm 24, we see something similar. Who shall stand in his, God's, holy place? The person with clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false or swear deceitfully. A picture of purity and integrity in word and in deed. Such is the person who can come into God's presence, who can ascend his holy hill. And last week, we asked how David is able to remember the truth about the goodness of God when his thoughts and emotions must have been overwhelming in the midst of his worst moments. Well, you know, what is David's desire in the midst of his enemies? David wants to shift his mind in order to remember that those with integrity and pure hearts are able to be in the presence of the Lord. In other words, David is holding on to God's promise to be with the righteous. In the midst of trials, David's first move is to find refuge in God's house, his holy city set apart for his dwelling. Back then, entering God's presence required a, a physical building, different purity rituals and sacrifices to cover sins. But what do these psalms mean for you and me today? How do we enter into God's presence in the midst of our trials? Do we walk away from these passages with the idea that we must become good enough to come into God's presence? That we need to have it all together before we can ascend God's holy hill? To use the Apostle Paul's words from the book of Romans, may it never be. So then, what conclusions ought we to draw? I think we can be nourished and encouraged through these texts in several rich ways. I think the first is this. Seeing the full sweep of Scripture, we know that we stand with confidence in the presence of God, not because of our work, but because of the finished work of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It is not through what we do or have done, but through what he has accomplished that we know we have a place in the presence of God forever. Consider Jesus' words in the Gospel of John, where he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's John 14, 6. Does Jesus say that the way to the Father is through living a righteous life, having clean hands and a pure heart? No. He says that the only way to come to the Father is through him. That's the gospel. Consider this rich and telling detail from when Jesus was hanging on the cross. It says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This is in Matthew 27. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
Did you catch that? When Jesus breathes his last and gives up his spirit, saying as is recorded in the other gospel accounts, it is finished, what happens? We read that the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What is this curtain that's being referred to? Well, this curtain that is being referred to isn't just any piece of fabric. It was the thick curtain that separated the rest of the temple from the place that they called the Holy of Holies. It was the place where they believed that God literally dwelt on the earth. The only person that was able to enter that place was the high priest. And even then, he was only allowed to enter once a year. So then when Jesus says it's finished and breathes his last, what is torn in two from top to bottom? The barrier that separated man from God. So then you and I can have confidence that Jesus truly is the way. Through him, we have the joy of being with God forever. And this is beautifully pictured in the book of Revelation where John sees the consummation of this way to be with God that Jesus has made possible for us. We read there that John saw, he said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Here it is, our, our, our temple language again, right? The holy city. When Jesus comes again, that holy city will descend in our midst, and God's dwelling place will be among us forever. Amen. And this brings us back to our text for a final question. And that question is this, does this mean that our conduct doesn't matter? Remember our Psalms? They tell us that it is the righteous and pure person that can dwell in the presence of God. And as we've just seen, the gospel tells us that by placing our faith in the only one who has been perfectly righteous and pure, can we dwell in the presence of God forever. And that is our glorious inheritance through Christ. But what does that mean for how I live now? That brings us to the second and final rich way that we can be blessed through this text that I'd like to explore with you. And that's this, that we're not saved and secured in a dwelling place with God by our good works, but we are saved for good works. Listen to that statement again. We're not saved by our good works, but we are saved for them. We see this among other places in this incredible passage in Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10. And it, it says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what do we see here? Our salvation, our assurance that we have a dwelling place in God's presence forever is not the result of our work. But we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Seen through this lens, the lists that we encounter give us a rich sense of what the life we live out of our life with God ought to look like. 
a life marked by righteousness, integrity, generosity, justice, and loving words. I hope this was a blessing to you and pray that you would know the confidence of resting in God's presence through the work of Christ and living out of that identity, a life of good works that reflects the goodness of the God we serve. So I want to leave you with a question as you consider what we read and thought about today, and that's this. What are some of the circumstances in your life in which you need to be reminded that you are in God's presence? And then when you think about that phrase, being saved for good works, being saved for good works, what thoughts come to mind and heart when you hear that? Again, I hope this was a blessing and an encouragement to you, and we will see you next time. Have a great day.